Cool. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, you guys. That was great. So, hi, everyone. Um, it's great to be with you guys tonight. And we are getting pretty close to Christmas, um, which, is, which is really cool. I don't think I've done any Christmas shopping at all. <laughs> so that'll be either like tomorrow, I think, or like the late all-night thing next Sunday night. That's actually on next Sunday night, by the way, after the carols, we worked out the all-night shop at Chermside is on. So if you want to keep hanging out after the carols next week and play some board games at Chermside at like 2 a.m., that's where me and Tam will be. <laughs> so feel free to come hang out. Um, and yeah, so heading into Christmas, we're going to just do a couple of weeks on Advent, um, which is this kind of season in the Christian calendar that just prepares us for Christmas and, and the coming of Christ. And normally it starts at the start of December. We're, we're sort of starting a bit late. Um, and the idea is to kind of to posture yourself in a posture of waiting and, and anticipation, expectation or hope uh, for the coming of Christ. Um, and I don't know what you guys are like with waiting. Uh, most people probably, it's not their favorite thing to do. Um, sometimes it's fun when I, I was just thinking about Christmas or like, I can't remember whether it was Christmas or, or birthdays, probably just anything to do with presents. Um, by the way, tonight, before I forget, um, we actually have some presents for the kids. So all the kids that are here, or parents that are here, make sure you don't leave before getting a present. We've even got some spares as well. Um, so um, yeah, we've got some presents for the kids. Most of them probably too young to know what that is, but that's okay. That's cool. <laughs> um, so, but when I was a kid waiting for Christmas, I don't know if it were you guys, but I was like so excited. I'd get so excited it would almost be annoying because I was so excited you can't sleep. And if you get to sleep, you know that it'll come faster. So you just want to get to sleep so that you can wake up in the morning so you can get the presents. And you're just waiting. This is like intense anticipation and excitement that's kind of fun, but also not fun because you want it to come so quickly. I have this memory of being a kid. I don't know if it was Christmas or birthday, and I was in bed in that sort of mindset of like, this is annoying, I can't get to sleep, I'm so excited about the presents. And mum and dad were in the kitchen, and they were having a like fake conversation about how they hadn't bought any presents, and how they'd, they'd oh, that's right, it's Christmas, and we were supposed to get presents, but we haven't got it, and I can overhear them, and I like think this is the worst thing ever, <laughs> like I'm so excited and there's no presents. I think I started crying and went out into the kitchen or something like that, it was intense, but, but I don't know what you're like when you, when you think that's so, like waiting can be like that, it can be like this real excitement that's kind of just so, so looking forward to it, there's so much energy, but at the same time waiting can be really hard, like there can be that sort of intense excitement for a short thing, but sometimes when you've been waiting for something, and you've been disappointed, and you've been waiting for something, you've been disappointed, and it, you don't know when it's going to happen, and it's just a long time, it can get really difficult. It can be like, is this ever going to come? Is this ever going to happen? And to hold on to hope can almost be painful in that way as well. It's like, it can be so close, it can be painful. When it's so far away, it can be difficult. And what we're going to do is kind of tonight is look at some of the story of God's people in Israel um, and, and in the Bible, because one of the things that characterize these people and, and is all through the Bible is the idea of waiting, being people who wait. And actually the Hebrew word for hope really is the word wait. It's not hope in the Bible. It's not like I hope something good will happen in the future. It's kind of like a wish. That's kind of how we use it. In the, in the Bible, the way they use it is that it's, it's waiting for God. It's actually waiting on him. And there's this sense of tension and anticipation but it's not just like a wish, but an expectant waiting for him to come, for him to break through. And what we're going to do is, I kind of don't know really why we're doing this, but we're going to go through Matthew chapter 1, which is the genealogy of Jesus. 
which is probably everyone's favourite part of the Bible. There's a long list of Jesus' family tree, um, just name after name after name. I actually, we did a Bible reading this morning, Joyce Dorr read it out with Bill Dorr, and uh, it was probably the worst Bible reading to give someone because all the names are hard to read and you're not sure and it's in front of it. So I'm, I didn't, we don't have a Bible reading today, but I'm going to read through this. And as we go through, it's actually telling the story of God's people. And it's, it's really interesting, particularly this idea of waiting and God's people being a people who wait and actually believe that history has a purpose and has meaning and has a goal and God's actually leading it somewhere. So what we're going to do is, is go through this in kind of preparation, positioning ourselves to wait for Jesus coming, but go back and look at this story and the, the purpose and the meaning of history that's in the midst of it. Because I don't know how you kind of think about history, and, and, and in some ways probably the, one of the common beliefs is that things just happen, and history is just the record of it. Just random things happen, People take over this country, they take over this country, they invent this thing, and it's sort of just humans have just come to existence somehow and life just goes on and eventually it'll just die and it'll just be gone. And in a sense, there's actually really no meaning, there's no purpose, it's not going towards a goal, it didn't really start with an intention, it just kind of started, it just kind of happened. And there's actually no real meaning in life, there's actually real no purpose in life apart from what you create. And then what we kind of, our culture encourages us to do in a lot of ways is just create your own meaning. Um, find something meaningful to give your life to. Find something that you believe in, whether it's family, whether it's career, whether it's just seeking to have a prosperous life, whether it's seeking to help people, whatever gives you meaning and makes your life meaningful. But ultimately, it's not actually contributing to anything bigger than that. Actually, life in terms of a big picture doesn't really have meaning or purpose. It just kind of is, or the purpose is just to live it and to enjoy it. But what we'll see as we go through, we're going to look at history from a biblical point of view, through going through this list of names, and Matthew, the, the author who's writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, actually is saying that, no, there's meaning and there's purpose and there's things that characterize history and God is at work in it. So what we're going to do is read through this and I'll pull some points out and then, then we'll um, go from there. So let's, let's pray. Um, if you have a Bible, it actually it's probably is pretty good to follow along today. It might actually make it a bit easier if you have it on your app or if you have, it, have a hard copy Bible. There might even be some up the back if you want to grab one. Um, but yeah, I'll pray and then let's stop. So Jesus, we just thank you for, for who you are and for this season of Christmas, we get to celebrate you and we get to celebrate you in our country. Um, thank you even at the moment. It's, it's, it's cool just to be at the shops and hear songs that praise your name and, and lift you high. And um, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for your story. And Jesus, thank you that we're a part of it. And tonight we just pray that you would speak um, by your word, even by this just list of names that seems really boring and uninteresting, God. Would you even speak powerfully through that um, tonight by your Holy Spirit? Um, and would you give us hope and, and give us courage to wait on you, we pray in your name. Amen. Okay, so this is Matthew chapter 1. Can you just click on that um, and then it should be good. It's not quite working. Maybe, um, can you grab me one of the other ones? Can you just go to the first one, Pete? Okay, so I'll read that. This is the beginning of the book of Matthew. So this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, this seems like not a very interesting way to start a book, right? 
And, but it's actually very, very important, particularly to Jewish people. They would be very interested in this because Jesus is claiming to be the true king of Israel. And it's really important who his parents are and their parents. It's really important who he's descended from. And we'll see why as we go on. And this idea of genealogy, it's interesting. This can also be translated, this is the genesis or like the new genesis of Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ. It's like this, the Bible started with the book of Genesis. This New Testament is a new genesis. God's doing a new thing through Jesus. So let's read through. Son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Again, just seems like a list of names. Thanks, Pete. Cool. But the interesting thing is, particularly these first two names are so important, that Jesus is claiming to be the son of David, the son of Abraham. And the interesting thing is, for Jews to hear that, these two people in history are incredibly important because God made promises to them. That God, way back early in the story, God came to Abraham and made a promise. This is what he said. I'll read this just quickly. This is from Genesis 12, God's promise to Abraham. God comes to this random guy. says, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham's in this list, and he's someone that God made a promise to. Again, God creates the world, evil comes into the world, and then God goes in this rescue plan, and it involves this man, Abraham. And the promise he makes to him is, is firstly that he's going to have a child when he's incredibly old, and, and it's through a miracle of God, but that this child, then there'll be more children that will grow into a nation, and this nation, their purpose is to be, a, be blessed by God and to bless the whole world. That God's going to create them, that they're going to grow and, and know him and reveal him. And this is going to start to deal with the evil of the world. God's going to bless the world even though there's evil in it. It's God's plan and his purpose through his promise. But then we see this keeps going. So first a promise to Abraham, then we keep going. I'll, I'll just read them out just for the sake of it. Ram, the father of Abinadab. Aminadab, something like that, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. You might know some of these people, people throughout the story of the Old Testament. So we've gone from Abraham leading up to King David. Again, probably the biggest figure in the Old Testament. That this promise God made to Abraham is... is begins to be fulfilled and the Israelites grow into a nation and then this nation turns into a kingdom and the first real true king the king that actually follows and reflects God's heart is King David and King David becomes this amazing figure of, of a man after God's own heart a man who loves God and serves him a man whose life was characterized by waiting that God made a promise to him that he was going to be the king and he had to wait ages before it was actually fulfilled. He waited upon God. So many of the Psalms are about David talking about waiting upon God and hoping in God. But God also made a promise to David. 
This is just a short little bit of it in Second Samuel. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That God has made this king, this kingdom has come into being. David is the king and David has followed and reflected God and God makes this promise to him that your throne, your kingdom, your descendants will continue to reign forever. This will keep going forever. So the first promise to Abraham, a nation that will be a blessing and then a kingdom that will last forever. So again, this, this, this promise is not just to the Jews, it's to, to create this nation that then blesses everybody then creates this kingdom that will last forever. It's everybody forever. God's made these promises. And what we see here reflected in this, this list of names is that history is actually driven by the promises of God. God speaks and makes a promise. And then history is directed towards that. God is actually working out history through his promises. That it actually has a purpose. It actually has a plan God's actually leading it in a direction. It's not just a random sort of whatever humans come up with, but there's actually a creator. And this creator didn't just create the world and just leave it go. He's created it, and he's working intimately in it through promises particularly. This is how Leslie Newbegin describes it. He says, All human life is a gift from God, and all things exist by his will. So God has given all things. History, therefore is not the story of the development of forces imminent within history. Again, like I was saying, it's not just, just humans do random things and that's history. He says, it is a matter of the promise of God. History has a goal only in the sense that God has promised it. God has spoken and things are going in the direction of what he says. He's actually leading history in a certain direction. This is another, again, and this, this comes right back from the start. Initially, when things go bad, the humans are deceived. They, they go with evil and comes into the world. God's initial promise is this. This is speaking to Satan, to evil. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And this is the very first time there's a glimpse of hope that there's somebody coming who's going to deal with this problem. There's someone who's coming who's going to defeat God's enemy, Satan, evil in the world. He's going to crush its head. But there's even a hint in this verse that it's going to involve suffering, that in involving it, his heel is going to be struck. And right from here, there's this promise. And then God starts to work it out through Abraham. God starts to work it out through David. But even throughout there, there's this horizon looking for this person that's coming that's actually going to be the true king who's actually going to be the blessing to the world that God's promised. But let me see this list. It keeps going. I'll keep reading through these names. David was the father of Solomon. Again, Solomon, rich, amazingly rich guy, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And again, interesting. Here in this list, David, this king, who was the one who followed God, was also an adulterer and a murderer. And that's actually listed in Jesus' family history. It's remarkable. Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. And it's interesting. This list now starts to list the kings of Israel after David. And if you know the story, most of them turn away from God. Most of them, many of them, start to worship other gods, start to forget 
God's law, start to start taking on the evil of the nations around them. When Israel's meant to be this blessed people that blesses others, and they start to do what everybody else is doing, and they often even start to do it worse. They start to do more evil in many cases. And this list now is starting to get really, really bad. Keeps going. Uzzah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And there's some kings in this list that start to try and turn things around. They turn back to God. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. Josiah, again, tries to turn things around. The father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And the story is God has created this nation. He's set up this kingdom, but then the story goes down. And this list is just like a progression downwards, eventually to God's judgment that comes against Israel. And they're sent out of the kingdom. They're sent into exile to Babylon. And this, this vision of being this nation that blesses people, of being this kingdom um, of glory, eventually they're overthrown. They're confused. Hope seems lost. Their, their enemy has overtaken them. Imagine that. You're God's people and all these enemies are just oppressing you and overtaking you and eventually taking you out of the promised land that God has given you. Just how confusing that would be. Just how disorientating that would be. I mean, prophets had spoken to them that this was going to happen, but for them to actually experience that would be an incredibly and it's, and it's terrible time, terrible history. But this list goes down, and we see God's judgment comes with human failure. We see history is characterized by the failures of humans, that God is working, God promises, but then people, this nation fails. They forget God. They, 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 they go to other nations. They, they don't keep the covenant. They fail. And again, in our lives, we, we probably know that in many ways, that God has made promises, God has worked in us, but in many ways we fall short. We fail. We sin. N.T. Wright says this, The Babylonian exile was the time when it seemed that all these promises were lost forever, drowned in the sea of Israel's sins, and God's judgment. Imagine being there. They're there and God has still made these promises and they're waiting now. They're waiting till the exile's finished. And there's been this hope. There's been promises that God is still going to redeem them. God's still going to come back. But to be there, to be in exile and have to just wait, have to hope in God, would be incredibly difficult. But we see then this list keeps going. So it's gone up, it's gone down, and now we see things keep progressing. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, I think this is where they get kind of hard, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud. And, and a lot of these names are actually not really well known, right? This is, they've come back from exile, but things are still not right. There's not, Israel's not back to its glory. There's still issues. There's still problems. There's still a sense of even being in exile, even though they're back in the land. And imagine that, again, to have your hope, you're so disorientated. When that happens, when you've got high hopes about something and you're disappointed, it's hard to hope again. It's hard to, 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 to look again and forward in expectation. But through this, God is still working. God is still holding on to this line of, of, of kings, of lineage from David. God is still working in the midst of this. And we see history is redeemed 
through the faithfulness of God. Even though they've gone into exile, God is still faithful. God is working in the midst of that. He brings them back, and he's still working in history. He's still fulfilling his promises. Even though his people have failed, he will keep his promises. He will be faithful. And this list shows us that. He keeps going, and he is leading it in this direction, in this goal. This is um, what Bruno says. When the people of God thought everything had fallen apart, God started to put everything back together again, just piece by piece. God is just working. God had promised Abraham and David important sons. And though it took a long time, God delivered. He'd made these promises. They're looking for this one to come. It seems like hope is lost, but God's putting things back together. God is working in history. He is leading it to his purpose, to his goal. And we see the list here. It says Elihud, the father of Eliza. Eliza, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. Again, really interesting, right? It's not Joseph, the father of Jesus. It's Joseph, the husband of Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. You think, well, if if Joseph isn't the father of Jesus, who is? It's like, I'll leave that hanging. So I think it's almost like a hint that Matthew kind of puts in there. It's like, well, who's the father of Jesus? Like, you have to like come back next time and wait and see. But you can see this is God, God has been working leading up to Jesus. He's delivered his promised Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David. He's been working in history, even in the midst of human failures, to lead to this point. And then this is really interesting. This is, if you like maths, you'll like this next section. Then Matthew says this, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. So the first section we looked at is Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, I won't go into detail in this, but if you want to study this more, there's a whole lot more depth you can go into with this genealogy. And if you study it, you'll realize there's not actually literally 14 Matthew's making a point, and he does kind of take some creative license with the genealogy. There's a few other really surprising, interesting changes he makes to make a point. So he's kind of actually making a theological statement with this. But by saying this idea of three sets of 14, if you do the maths like this, you can... I forget what this is called, but if you, if you swap, 14 times 3 is also the same as 7 times 6, or, or three groups of 14, or... So six groups of seven. And it's interesting that seven is such an important number in the Bible. It's this this idea of fulfillment um, or perfection. God uses it a lot. And Jesus is making, not Jesus, Matthew's writing this. Matthew's making a point by putting these these, um, numbers and breaking up the genealogy in this way. This is how N.T. Wright puts it. He says, the number seven was and is one of the most powerful symbolic numbers. And to be born at the beginning of the seventh seven. So there's three groups of 14. So Jesus is the seventh seven in the sequence, is clearly to be the climax of the whole list. This birth, Matthew is saying, is what Israel has been waiting for for 2,000 years. Matthew starts this, this book about Jesus with this list of all of Israel's history and then makes this deliberate point that Jesus is the seventh seven. All things have been leading up to his coming. That's what God's been doing in history. Another way to say it 
this guy says, Matthew shows the believer that when you add up the meaning of history, the bottom line is Jesus Christ, the son of David. Or another way to describe it simply is that Jesus is the meaning of history. That history has a goal. History has a purpose. God has a plan that he's fulfilling through his promises. And it all points to Jesus. He's been working since the beginning, leading up to his coming. And, and we know since he's come and since he's died and since he's risen, that now history continues and he is still the meaning of history and history is leading to his return, that one day he will come back and he will, will fully defeat evil and he will renew the creation and we will live with him forever and, and it will just be this amazing, what, what life is supposed to be, this idea of a garden city or Eden restored forever and he will fulfill his promise and that Jesus is actually the meaning of history and that this idea that well history is is just meaningless or we just have to make our own meaning or whatever we sort of come up with we're kind of at the center of it is is not the story of the bible or this is not the story of Jesus that actually Jesus is the meaning it's his story everything's going in his direction but we're still a part of that, and it's actually not about us. And there's actually a freedom in that, that we don't have this pressure of we have to make our lives amazing, that we actually get to enter his. So what I want to do, just to finish off, is kind of just think through kind of some of those things. What does this mean for us? If Jesus is the meaning of history, if God is working through him, leading up to him until his return, what does it mean for us? Firstly, it means that we actually have a story that the interesting thing the New Testament talks about, those who believe in Jesus are people of faith, and we become children of Abraham, the man of faith. We actually are, are welcomed into this long line of people of faith, of God's family, that's gone through the whole Old Testament. That, that, that story is not just kind of like chucked away, but actually it, it's our story, that we actually have this, this history. We are part of God's people in the earth. So again, our life is not just me, my life, when I was born, what I have, what my dreams, what my ambitions are. It's actually, no, we have a, a family and we have like a, a biological family. We have this spiritual family, this spiritual heritage that actually defines who we are in a lot of ways. That we're part of this people of God that God is working out his promises through in history. And because of that, we have a future. This is an interesting thing. Again, like the, the, the story is not a story that's finished. It's not a story that's like the end bit's been written and it's all done. Like, like the Bible is finished in the sense that, that God is, has, has delivered it to us through human authors, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the, the scriptures point to the end of the story and reveal things about it. But the story is not finished. We're in the story of history. We're in the story of God now, that this is our story, the past, and we know where things are heading, and we know how it's going to finish, and we, therefore we have hope that God will defeat evil, God will, Jesus will return, the creation will be renewed. It's not just like, a, oh, we wish and just hope that that will happen. It's like God has promised it. God has fulfilled all his promises in the past. He will fulfill it, but we're actually still living in it, and therefore we actually have a purpose and meaning. 
that actually life is not, again, just whatever we come up with, but actually our life is leading somewhere. The history of the world is leading somewhere to God's purposes in Jesus. And actually we are a part of that. We contribute to that. We actually live in that. It's not that we just live a few years, have some fun, do some awesome stuff, get lots of money and then die. It's that we will live forever with him. That everything's heading that direction. And it starts now, but one day will be fulfilled when he returns. And that's the hope, that he will return, that he will redeem everything. And if that's where everything's heading, we start working towards that now. This is how one... This, and, and again, interesting thing. We might think, we might be tempted to think, well, if we know that that's going to happen one day in the future and we're just going to go to heaven or things are just going to get better then, then we should just do nothing now. Like we just sort of make the most of life and just sort of wait around and not do anything. But the interesting thing is that the Apostle Paul, when he's writing in Corinthians about resurrection, he's writing about how we will be raised from the dead, we'll have new life, we'll live forever with God. And he says because of that, we are to work hard now knowing that our work will last forever. It's meaningful. It has purpose. This is how he puts it, 1 Corinthians 15. After talking about the resurrection, he says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not that we're going to give our whole lives to something and then it's just going to be gone. It's just meaningless. It's that we actually give our lives to Jesus and it will last for eternity. It will actually last in his kingdom, the future hope actually motivates us and actually says what we give and what we contribute to him now will last. And again, this is not just um, like just helping people become Christians or just reading the Bible, like although those, it is those things, but it's, it's bigger than that. God's interested in the whole of creation. This is how Wright puts it. Again, he says this way, by this he means... Now, this is talking about what Paul just said before. By this he means that what you do in the present, by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. As we reflect God, as we are his people, we are fulfilling his promises that the world will be blessed through his people, and it's lasting into his future. He keeps going, these activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly or a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Or another author I was reading was talking about as we live out this, this way of God, it's like they're prayers for the kingdom. They're revealing the kingdom. They're revealing that history's going this direction. One day people will love each other perfectly, there will be no sin. One day, one day all evil will be done away. One day there will be no war. One day there will be no hunger. One day there will be no poverty. That's where everything's going. And now we work for that now and at last. And therefore we have a past. We have a story. We have a future. And their life is meaningful. But it's not us. It's not that we're at the center. It's Jesus is at the center. The story is about him. But we find great meaning in playing our little part in his story, whatever that is. So this is a brief summary. So Jesus is the meaning of history. We have a story past. We have a future hope. And we have a purpose, meaning. 
might just tell a quick story. I wasn't going to do this, but it's just, I just like it so much. I'm just going to tell one quick story, and then we'll, then we'll finish up and have communion and worship. I, I've, I, I shared this last year, but I want to share it again, because um, I just find it so good. There's this, I won't tell you the movie, I, again, I talked about it last year, but Advent's every year, so you're probably going to get this every year. But, but um, there's this movie that came out a couple of years ago that just seemed like a generic normal kind of movie, which actually most, lots of movies follow kind of the story um, that's similar to the story of the Bible about like a saviour coming to rescue the world through sacrifice. Like a lot of movies follow that plot line. But normally it's kind of like, I don't know if you think of Star Wars, like Luke Skywalker's just in the desert and then all of a sudden finds out that there's this grand war going on and there's the force and there's all this stuff and he's kind of caught up in this story and then discovers that actually he's the saviour in a lot of ways and he's going to rescue the world. Like lots of movies are kind of like that. Lord of the Rings is similar, like just a character that finds out there's this big story going on and then discovers that actually they're, they're the ones who are going to rescue the day and they're, they're kind of the hero. And most stories we read and listen to, right, like you, they follow the hero. The hero is the interesting person. The hero is the one who's going to save the day. Um, and, and in some ways, that's just kind of what the story is normally about. But I watched this movie um, the other year and it followed the same progression. A, a guy, sci-fi movie, discovers there's this, all this other stuff going on in the world that he didn't know about and discovers that there's this chosen person, same, like Matrix is the same, right? Like so many movies, there's a chosen one, there's, there's someone that's been prophesied, there's someone that's been destined, and he finds out that about this thing, and the movie goes on and he finds out that it's him. And then he has to grapple with that, like, well, it's me, I'm the saviour, like I, I have to rescue the world, like how am I going to do that, what's going to happen? And you kind of, kind of watch the movie and kind of think, this is kind of just typical, and then the movie keeps going a bit, and then he finds out that he's not. He's not the saviour, and he's actually just a guy. And there's actually all these other people that think that they're the saviours, and they're not. And then there is this other saviour, but they're not really in the movie very much. They're kind of to the side. And then that's kind of, this guy does some stuff, and then he dies, and that's the movie. And I, I was kind of like, oh, I was really excited about this movie. And it just seemed kind of lame. Like, it's like this guy just thought he was a saviour, he's not the saviour, did something and then he died. It was like, oh, well. And then I had this realisation that was so profound that this movie basically followed the, the plot line of a guy who's not the hero. Just a random guy, right? Imagine Star Wars and the movie's about a stormtrooper just doing the things and just like the, the, the big stories over there and the stormtrooper is just like doing his stuff like and that follows that plot line and or, or Lord of the Rings and it's just like one of the elves or something like it's one of the guys to the side like that's actually what it follows but you think that he's the hero you think he's the main character but in, it actually finds out there's this other big story and he's not the main character but the interesting thing at the end is he realizes that and he, what he does is actually contributes to the plan and actually helps the, the, the plan to rescue these people. And he, he actually ends up offering himself to it and finds great meaning and peace in it. And it's actually this freeing, freeing thing of actually, wow, I'm not the saviour. I'm not the hero. But there is another hero. There is another saviour. And I get to contribute a small part in his story and by doing that, find great meaning 
even if it's small, even if it's insignificant, because it's not about us being significant. It's not about us contributing something amazing. It's about Him and anything that's given to Him and His purposes is incredibly significant and meaningful. And I just love that, that, that movie because the, the picture of it just kind of flips. And, and again, it's like, wow, life is not about me. It's about Jesus. Jesus is a Savior. God has been working through all of human history for His coming and for His return. And we are a small little part in that. But we get to contribute to it. We get to give to His kingdom. We get to live in it and be a part of it. And He welcomes and invites us into it. And it's about more than us, and there's great freedom and liberty in that. And with that, then, we are people who have hope, and therefore are people who wait. Wait on God to come back. Wait on God like they waited on Jesus to come. We wait on Him to return, and we work in that time. So we're going to respond with communion. And as, as we have communion today, I, I'm going to read a passage from a psalm in a second. Just to kind of, and I just want you to just kind of posture yourself in that posture of waiting. Waiting in, in confident hope. And again, you might be at a place at the moment where there's not much hope. You kind of think there's, there's, the future just doesn't look good. And the interesting thing about hope in the Bible is that it's, it's hope in God when the future doesn't look good. Like there's no reason... The hope, except for God. The hope is in God. And as we posture, I want you to posture yourself as we take communion and and enter into that story of waiting for Jesus, that people were waiting for him for thousands of years. But he has come. And now at Advent, we we wait on him to come into our lives in, in greater measures, to come into our community, to come into this world. We wait on him each day. And ultimately, we wait and look and realize that the day when things will actually be put right is, is not when we get the awesome job or the new house. Like it's, not in, it's not in stuff or in our dreams, but it's in when He comes is the day when He will defeat evil, the battle will be done, He will reign forever. That's our hope, and we wait for then. So I'm going to read this psalm and, and pray, and then you can come up and, and take communion uh, when you're ready. This is from Psalm 33, again, we hope in the Lord. We wait in hope for the Lord. It's for Him. He is our help and our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in You. And Father, we just pray tonight that that You would shift us and fill us with hope, God, by Your Spirit. Even in supernatural ways, God, would you fill us with faith and hope, God, a a confidence in your future, uh, a confidence in you, and particularly, God, for for just those in in difficult situations, God, where there's no real reason for any hope, um, God, would you stir even supernatural hope in you? And Jesus, we just remember that, that you came as a fulfillment of your promises, God, you are faithful even in the midst of our failures and our sin. And we just ask, God, for faith and for, for your help to wait on you, to look to you and to work for you in the meantime. So, Holy Spirit, would you come um, and meet with us um, just as we take the, the biscuit and the juice and, and remember your sacrifice? Um, and would you, would you work in our hearts um, tonight, Father God? Just restore hope. Um, just bring joy Um, as we look to you, as we rejoice in you, particularly leading into Christmas. I just pray this in your name.
Amen.